Well, guys, I want to welcome you to week three of Band of Brothers. We're in the, the book of Jonah, and I'm really excited to dive into this book, especially over the past couple of weeks, as really throughout this whole book, we see a few things. One, the, the overarching theme of Scripture, that is God redeeming His people, or God's redemptive plan. Um, and then we've also just seen some of the things the, that Jonah is represent, a representation of Israel. And so this has just been a, a great book to study, and I'm really excited to dive into uh, what we're going to be in today. We're going to be in Jonah chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. So you can go ahead and turn there. I'm going to pray for us before we get started. Father, thank you for today, and God, I just thank you for bringing us here um, today. As, we're, as you're watching this, Lord, I pray that as we go through our our passage today, Father, that you would you would be present, Lord, that you would uh, speak through me, and Lord, the, the words that I say today, they're not my own, but they're yours. Um, Lord, I pray that through our passage today and through our study of the book of Jonah, we would see your redemptive plan, we would see your sovereignty playing itself out, and Lord, that would fuel our obedience to you and fuel our obedience to follow your commands. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we study this book. In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so what I want to do before we get started is kind of give us a recap, get us, pick us back up from where we left off. Over the past couple of weeks, we've talked about how this book is really showing us God's redemptive plan. The, the whole story of Scripture is the, the overarching theme is God redeeming His people or, or God's redemptive plan playing itself out. And we're going to see that play itself out specifically here in the book of Jonah. And even here in a little bit, we'll see the beginnings of it back all the way in Genesis. But that's one of the main things that we see in this book. And then on top of that, Ken has established this link between Jonah and the nation of Israel. One of the phrases that you'll hear me say quite a bit today is Jonah is really this microcosm of an example of a, a macro problem that is going on in Israel. So the decisions that Jonah makes, the, the actions that Jonah takes are really representative of some of the problems and the, the failings of Israel when it comes to their calling to be a light to the nations. And so as we've seen this, this link between Israel and Jonah play itself out over the past couple of weeks, what I want to do today is I want to go back a little further. And what I want to do is I want to establish this link between Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant and Jonah. And you, you may be wondering why I want to do this, but what I want us to see is if we go back to Abraham or Abram at the time of, of Genesis 12 and the Abrahamic covenant, we see God calling Abraham out of his land, out of his country to, to leave, it says his kindred, to leave his father's house, to go to the land that the Lord is telling him to go to, to follow the Lord. And he's told that if he does this, that he will be a great name. God will make him a great nation. He'll bless him. He'll make his name great. And so let's read in Genesis chapter 12. It says, this is God speaking, it says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So what do we see in this? In the Abrahamic covenant, we see that Abraham was told that his offspring would be a blessing if, and this would happen if, Abraham left his country, did all that the Lord was calling him to do. If he did this, he would make his descendants, his, his, his offspring, a blessing to, to the nation. So what's fascinating here is the, these descendants, this, this offspring, in our context currently, 
is the Israelites. If we're thinking through the, the book of Jonah from Abraham to Jonah, we see that these are the descendants, these Jewish people are the descendants, the offspring of Abraham. And Abraham is told that he'll be uh, a father of many nations. And we see Abraham in Hebrew, his name actually means a father of a multitude. But like I said, in, in our context, in our current context, these descendants that are to be a blessing to the nations, they're, they're called to be a blessing to the nations, are the Israelites. So going back to Abraham, the followers of God, the followers of Yahweh, were called to be a light to the world. Now, specifically, they were called to be a light to the Gentile nations. Now, we've seen this word thrown around a few times already in the past couple of weeks, the word Gentile. And so when I say that, what I mean is a, a Gentile is someone belonging to or a part of any other nation or people group besides the Jewish people. And so what we see here is we see that the Israelites, the Jewish people, all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Genesis, are called to be a light to the world, a light to the nations. So Israel's call was to do that, to bring this message of hope, this message of repentance to specifically the Gentile nations, those outside of the Jewish people, the Israelites. And what's fascinating in all of this is we see the, the heart of God. We see God's heart for those who don't know Him, who, who, who aren't, uh, aren't following His ways, aren't following the Lord. And we see this call to the Israelites to be this to those Gentile nations as truly the heart of God. And as I've been studying and preparing for teaching this week, one of the things that has just been kept, that has kept coming through my head is these passages in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49 that really get to the heart of this being the heart of the Lord, the heart of God to see those who don't know Him come to know Him. And I want to read the, these passages because they speak to the Lord being a light to the nations, a light for the nations. So Isaiah 42, I want to preface this passage first because really what this is, is it's a messianic prophecy. This is a passage that is speaking about the coming Messiah, which is Jesus. But in it, we see that God's, we see God's heart for the nations. We see God's heart to, to see Jesus be a light to the world. And in fact, that's what, exactly what it says. So Isaiah 42, it says, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So in this passage, again, it's describing Jesus, but what we see here is he's described as a light for the nations. So this is the heart of God. It, it, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people are called to be a light for the nations, a light to the world. And then again, Isaiah 49, it says, I will make you as a light for the nations. There's that phrase again that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So we see in these two passages, we see in the passage in Genesis, and then we see all throughout Scripture that God's call to those descendants of Abraham, in, in our context, the, the Israelites in the book of Jonah, was to be a light to the nations, a light to the world. And we see that in that's the heart of God. We see that in the actions of Jesus. And then we see that they are to be a light to the nations so that God's salvation may reach the end of the earth. 
Now, a quick survey of the Old Testament would show us that this honestly doesn't happen all the time. We see these patterns emerge of the Israelites following the Lord for a little while and then falling away from following God. And then they fall back into God's grace. And then they'll follow God for a little while and then they'll fail and they'll fall from the Lord and then they fall back into into God's grace. And we see these patterns emerge over and over and over again. And just a few quick examples that come to mind when we, we think of these, these patterns. Exodus chapter 17, what's happened up to this point in the book of Exodus is God has delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. He's delivered them from slavery. They, Moses has parted the Red Sea. They've walked through it on dry land and they're wandering in the wilderness. And while they're wandering in the wilderness, what happens is they begin to grumble. They begin to groan and moan. And they, they say to God, why have you brought us here? You brought us here to kill us. We, we were much more comfortable in slavery in Egypt. And they begin to say these things over and over and over again and begin to complain to God, even after having seen him part the Red Sea and do all of these miracles in Egypt. And up to this point, they fall away from God and they stop following him. Exodus chapter 32, this is another example, including Moses and in the story, Moses is on uh, top of the mountain. He's on top of Mount Sinai. He's getting the Ten Commandments. He's getting the the law, the instruction from God. And while he's up there in the very presence of God, down at the the foot of the mountain, the Israelites are actually erecting a golden calf and starting to worship this false god. And so we've seen them again go shortly after being delivered out of slavery in Egypt to doing these things and worshiping a false god and and falling away from the Lord and not living up to their calling to be a light to the world, a light to the nations. And I wanted to include this this passage from the book of Judges because I think it's one that you and I can really resonate with because all throughout the book of Judges, the Israelites are they're wanting a king because they see the nations around them have kings and they want to be like them. So God allows judges to rule over Israel and some are good, some are bad, but ultimately, at the end of the book of Judges, we, we see, honestly, in my opinion, one of the most chilling verses in Scripture. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now what's chilling about this, and again, what we're seeing, how we're seeing the Israelites fail here, is naturally, at our core, we are sinful people. And it's only by the grace of God that we are able to choose to glorify Him. But if we're left to our own devices and we decide what is right and wrong in our own eyes, sin's going to reign supreme every time. And so that's where we're seeing Israel left here in the book of Judges. And that's something that I think you and I uh, could resonate with because I think all throughout our world today, we see people trying to do what is right in their own eyes. And so this is this is... Israel, and these are just a few examples of the, the patterns we see in Israel throughout the Old Testament. But this idea should, should sit with us today as really a representation of kind of where Israel is at in the book of Jonah, of not living up to their calling to be a light to the world, a light to the nations. And what's even further is all throughout the Old Testament prophets through Scripture, and I'm going to show a few of them here in a second, most of, their, most of their cries to Israel are cries for repentance. The prophets are calling the nation of Israel to repent and return to God. 
Hosea chapter 14 verse 1 says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Joel chapter 2 says, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart. We see just in these two passages that God is constantly calling His people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, back to Him. He, he wants them to return to Him, repent and return to Him. And we see Him using the prophets to tell them to do this. Ezekiel chapter 18 says, Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Guys, we see in this passage that our transgressions and our iniquity, those things by themselves will lead us to ruin, and following those things will only lead to ruin. And so God is calling the nation of Israel again back to repentance and back to himself so that they can live up to their calling to be a light to the world. And this, this last passage here, it's in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, prophet and he's known by that because most of the time, he, he, these, these calls to repentance, he's doing by himself. It's lonely. He's, he's the only one calling them to do this. In Jeremiah chapter 4, it says, If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and you do not waver, then the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. We see that really this this contrast between removing the detestable things from the Lord's presence and and not wavering, and in that, what happens is the nations will bless themselves and they will bring God glory. We see Jeremiah here along with all of the other prophets calling the Israelites back to repentance. That that is what we see the, the, the prophets constantly doing and it's just establishing this idea that Israel was, was constantly falling from their calling to be a light to the world that we see established all the way back in Genesis. So how, is that, how does that play itself out in where we're today, where we are today in, in Jonah chapter 1? We've seen from the past couple of weeks that we've set this precedent that Jonah is represent, representative of Israel. The actions that he takes, the, the decisions that he makes, really at a, at a macro level describe what's going on in Israel, especially when it comes to their relationship to the Lord. So with that in mind, how is, it playing, how is this playing itself out? Well, where we left off last week, we were, Jonah had already boarded the ship. He was, he was headed to Tarshish. He was trying to flee from the presence of the Lord as if that's even possible. But he's on the ship with these Gentiles. He'd been called to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to go to Nineveh, and so he tries to flee. So he's, he's on the ship, and as he's on the ship, this massive storm hits. And twice in today's passage, we see the storm described as tempestuous. And in this moment, you can imagine just the waves crashing in, against the boat. Winds are, you know, gale force. They're, they're going crazy. Things are not looking good. We even see these sailors throwing things overboard, to try to save the ship. And you got to imagine things are really bad if they're throwing their livelihood overboard in order to save themselves. So Jonah falls asleep. The sailors go down. They wake him up. They bring him up up to the top of the ship. And they say, hey, pray to your gods. We're all praying to our gods, but pray to your gods so that we might be saved. And so in all this, obviously, it's not working. And so what they decide to do is they decide to cast lots. 
Now, we don't know what these lots really are, what they look like, what, what is actually going on, but we know that throughout Scripture we've seen lots cast to uh, decide things, choose somebody, or in this case, we see that they are cast to see whose fault this storm is. So they cast these, fall, or these, these lots and they, they fall on Jonah. And immediately, we see the emotions of these sailors rise to the surface. We see their reactions go crazy because they, as soon as these lots fall on Jonah, they jump into just this rapid line succession of questions. You can pick up with me in verse 8. It says, and imagine, imagine the, being in the sailor's shoes. This crazy storm came out of nowhere. You have no idea what's going on. And then all of a sudden, you're trying to figure out whose fault the storm is, and all of the lots fall on Jonah. And they jump into these questions, and they say, what is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? They don't give Jonah a second to answer these questions. They just immediately, one after another, start asking these questions pretty quickly. And as I'm reading this passage, one of the things that I think about is, I, I, if you've ever had a conversation with like a little kid, for example, my, my niece came in town not too long ago, and I was chatting with her. She's five years old, and she was asking me questions about what I did, and it, she began asking why behind every question. And then it got to the point where she started asking multiple questions in a row without even me answering it, and I had to stop, and I'd be like, Ellie, hold on, calm down. Like, what, what question do you want me to answer first? because you got curious and, and just asking more and more questions. And I'm imagining that's what's happening here. Except in, in this case, the, the sailors are terrified and they want to get to the bottom of why this is happening. And so they immediately just jump into these questions. And so after they ask all these questions, look at how Jonah responds. He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Now, one of the things that has been so fascinating for me to study is in the book of Jonah is to see these things where I've never noticed before. I've, I've studied the book of Jonah before, but this is something that I've never noticed. And honestly, for, for those of you who have been involved with Banner Brothers for a while, you, you see Ken say that phrase, I've never noticed this before often. And that's, for me, one of the most encouraging things. And one of the things that I love most about working with him is because we see that you know, Ken's been doing this since the dinosaurs walked the earth, yet he's still learning more and more about the Lord. And that's something that I'm seeing here. This is something that I've studied this book. You know, I grew up in church, and I've never noticed this. The first thing that Jonah says is he's a Hebrew. It's not that he follows the Lord, but the first thing that he says is he is a Hebrew. Now, simply put, what he's trying to say here is that he is an Israelite, and the sailors on the ship would have understood him to mean that he was a Jewish person. They would have understood that he was a Jew in this moment. So he says that he's a Hebrew first, and then he mentions God second. This is something that I would have not really seen had I just read quickly past this verse, but we see that he mentions God second. Now it says in the literal translation that he fears the Lord. Now this is not a a, a, a fear out of cowardice. This is a fear out of reverence. And the word that Jonah uses there should employ that idea. It's that he, he fears the Lord, but he's fearing so out of reverence, not in a, a cowardly fear. But guys, honestly, the irony can't be lost here because in this moment, Jonah, in this crazy storm, when all of the lots fall on him and they ask him all these questions, he says that 
He's a Hebrew first, and then he fears the Lord. In this moment, Jonah is willfully using and employing the name of God, but in the same breath, not listening to his commands. Remember where Jonah is right now. He is on a ship trying to flee the presence of the Lord because he doesn't want to do what God has called him to do. And so instead, what he's doing is he, he says, I fear the Lord. And he even goes on to say, the God of the, the sea and the dry land, everything that the God is doing this storm right now, causing the storm. Yeah, that's the God that I worship. Yet in the same breath, he's still fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And we'll see that continue even in this passage today. So to us, the reader or the original audience of the book of Jonah, his words should ring incredibly hollow. So if we're to follow this line of thinking that Jonah represents Israel, how do we see Israel in this? Well, we see that he's putting, Jonah himself is putting other things before that of God, and the same thing is true in Israel. You see, he's putting other things before God and his answer, which is indicative of a much larger problem for the Israelites. You see, they know all their traditions. They know how to talk the talk. They know how to outwardly appear as if they know what they're doing. They've got it all together. They're following everything. But in reality, they're not living it out. And we're seeing that in Jonah in the sense that he's fleeing. And for the nation of Israel, that's the problem. You see, in all of this, it makes them just as bad as the Ninevites that he's, Jonah is fleeing from. Because think about it. The, the Ninevites were not a godly people. They were far from it. Um, but when we've seen examples of that throughout the past couple of weeks. But they, they're not following God, and we see Israel doing the same thing. And we've seen patterns emerge of Israel doing this. But in this moment, Jonah is not following God, and as a result, the Israelites are not following God as well. And so we see that these Ninevites that Jonah is trying to avoid going to, really they're just as bad as them in the sense that they're not following the call that the Lord has given them. So pick up with me in verse 11. This is the, the sailors. They say, What shall we do to you that, you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Now, this is the, really kind of the, the climax of the story. When people think of the book of Jonah, what they typically think of is him being thrown into the sea and being swallowed by a great fish. Guys, a little bit about me. If you don't know me, I, I grew up in the church, and I basically the church that I attended from the moment I was born to when I went off to college, I was there as much as I possibly could be. My parents were... Sunday school, first grade Sunday school teachers for a little over 20 years. And when you grow up in Sunday school, you hear these stories. You hear Jonah, you hear the parting of the Red Sea, the, these, these miracle stories, and they stick to you, they stick in your brain, they stick out because they're, they seem pretty crazy. And this, this part of the book of Jonah, for me, had always stuck out because when he volunteers to throw himself into the sea, he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. It's typically taught and it's typically remembered as a selfless act. It's usually taught as a selfless act. And you see, Jonah seems to be putting the lives of the sailors above his own life. And so in that line of thinking, you start to, to, to ponder like, okay, is, is Jonah really starting to change? Is, are we getting to a point to where maybe Jonah is starting to realize 
what he's done wrong? Is he starting to come to his senses? But nothing could be farther from the truth in this moment. Because think about it, not only was he not showing compassion to the Gentiles that were on the ship, keep in mind the people who, who picked up Jonah, the, that were, the sailors on the ship were not followers of the Lord. And so not only was he not being a light to the nations, a light to the world for them, and also putting them in trouble by being on the ship in the first place, not only was he not showing compassion for the Gentiles on the boat, but at the same time, He's still trying to flee from the Lord in this moment. By being thrown into the sea, he's still trying to flee from the Lord because the decision to be thrown into the sea is Jonah making the conscious decision to die rather than preach repentance to the Ninevites. He is literally saying that he would so much rather be thrown into the sea because it pretty much means all but certain death because the storm's crazy, he'll drown, and so he's thinking, if I get thrown into the sea, that just puts an end to all of this and everything will be okay and I don't have to go pre preach uh, repentance to the Ninevites. And what's funny is, it, and ironically, the, the pagan Gentiles on this boat actually show more compassion towards Jonah than he is showing towards them. And I know this because in the very next verse, after Jonah says, hey, hurl me into the sea, this is what happens. Verse 13 says, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So the first action of these Gentiles, when Jonah says, Hey, throw me overboard, is for them to try as hard as they can to row the boat back to dry land. They try as hard as they can to, to make sure that Jonah wouldn't have to be thrown overboard. They're trying to avoid that outcome. And what's interesting here is we're seeing the sovereignty of God play out. You know, all throughout this story, there have been, and we're, we're only a few verses into the first chapter, but there have already been a few twists. We've seen Jonah get the call from God to go to Nineveh, but then try to flee the presence of the Lord. And again, as if that's even possible, he boards the ship to Tarshish to try to flee and then he volunteers to be thrown overboard because he thinks it will ultimately kill him. Yet through all of that, the Lord was in control. I, I love last week, we, we kind of set this picture of, you know, in the book of Jonah, God's not sitting up in heaven on his throne, calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, and then all of a sudden, you know, just is sitting back and watching. And then, oh my gosh, what's Jonah doing? Is Why is he boarding a ship? Why is he fleeing my presence? What, what is going on? No, in all of this, God was in control. He was in control the whole time. And you see, this is what Jonah, or, or Israel rather, did not understand. They did not understand that God was in control. And honestly, this, this understanding of God's sovereignty should have and could have really fueled their obedience to God. Understanding that God was in control at all times rather than how they're acting out and thinking they can flee the presence of the Lord. We see all throughout Scripture that God is sovereign. And one of the cases that I want to point out here is a verse in Proverbs chapter 16. It says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. I wanted to include this verse to show you God's sovereignty because we just came out of an instance where lots were used. The lots were cast and they fell on Jonah. And this verse from Proverbs shows us that even in that, God was in control. All of the lots falling on Jonah was no coincidence. 
It was God's sovereignty playing itself out. It was God in control the whole time. Job 42, Job is a fantastic book, and I don't have time to go into the whole story. And if you want to shoot me an email or ask me about it afterwards, I'd love to talk to you about it. But the end of the book of Job, we see Job say this of God. It says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Guys, in this verse, we see that no plan of God can be thwarted. The, the sovereignty of God reigns supreme. God is in control at all times. And then lastly, in Isaiah 45, it says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I think this, this verse, this passage, passage really speaks to what we're looking at in Jonah because God is sovereign. God is in control. He creates light. He creates darkness. He makes well-being and he creates calamity. Think about the moment that we're in in Jonah. Right, We're in this tempestuous storm, this crazy storm that's going on, and God is in control of all of it. God is in control the whole time. And so failing to believe that really proves that the Israelites are failing, or Jonah was failing to be a light to the nations. They were failing to live out their calling that they were given. Jonah refused to go to Nineveh. He fled the presence of the Lord, and he voluntarily threw himself into the sea. He, he said, hurl me into the sea because I'm the reason this is all happening. And if we remember Jonah being a prophet in doing all of this and, and, and failing to live up to this calling, he was being apostate. We've used that word a couple of times um, over the past couple of weeks, and I want to define it here. This is from Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. It defines apostasy as defection from the faith, an act of unpardonable rebellion against God and His truth. The sin of apostasy results in the abandonment of Christian doctrine and conduct. Guys, this really kind of describes the moment that Jonah's in. He is, he is defected from the faith. He has rebelled against God and His truth, and he's doing everything opposite of what he's been called to do. Jonah, as a prophet of God, was called to go to the Ninevites and preach repentance yet he was failing to do that and actually was doing the opposite by trying to flee from the presence of God. So let's pick up in verse 15. It says, So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. What's so fascinating here, and this is an, another one of those examples of, well, I've never seen this before, having studied the book of Jonah, and it's really quick to, to, easy to miss, quick to look over, but the sailors go from actually fearing the Lord in a, in a cowardice form of fear earlier to pretty quickly, the moment they throw Jonah into the sea and they see everything stop, their fear turns into a fear of reverence. They, they start to revere the Lord. And it expresses itself rather quickly because the moment that that happens, they immediately start to make vows and offer sacrifices to God. And you see, if you remember, not that long ago, on this boat, these Gentiles were praying to their pagan gods, but now they've seen the God, and they've, they've seen the actions of the, of the God that Jonah says he worships. And in that, the, they begin to worship in fear 
Yahweh. So thinking about the Israelites and the the Gentiles in this story, we see the roles really reversed. We see that that Jonah or Israel should have been worshiping Yahweh, they should have been worshiping God, and they should have been living out their calling to be a light to the nations. Remember, this is what they were called to do, but they were failing to do so. They should have been following the Lord, but instead they were fleeing from the Lord. Instead, Jonah was fleeing from God. We see him do this really in the first few verses of the book of Jonah. And so what happens is the Gentiles in this story are the ones that actually end up responding to the call of God. We see these roles reversed, and we see this happen not only with the Gentiles on the boat, but in the Ninevites. And we'll see here in chapter 4 of the book of Jonah that the Ninevites ultimately respond to this message of repentance. And, and we see, again, Moses, I mean, sorry, not Moses, Jonah fleeing from this call. And he even says that, Lord, I understand that you are a gracious and a merciful God, and I knew that if I preached repentance to Nineveh, that they would repent, and that's why I didn't want to do it. And so we see these roles reverse of the Gentiles and the Ninevites, but despite all of Jonah's disobedience in this story, we see these Gentiles acknowledge God as their own. And again, this shows us the heart that God has for the nations. He has a heart for those who don't know him to come to know him. And we see that playing itself out here with the Gentiles on the boat in this moment. So in verse uh, 17 of chapter 1, it says, And the Lord had appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, this is another one of those things that's so fascinating here because one, we're seeing God's sovereignty play itself out because Jonah is, is rescued, really swallowed by a great fish. But a literal translation of this verse would have us read, and the Lord had appointed a great fish. Now, I, I, I've been able to look at some of the Hebrew in this verse, and it shows us that from the, well before any of this had happened, God's sovereignty is playing itself out because God is in control and has had appointed a fish to rescue Jonah and swallow Jonah, and he's going to be in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights. Now, the, we see that this was God's plan all along. We see that God is in control, God is sovereign, and that God was bringing his plan to fruition. There was never a moment in this story where God was sitting up in heaven and see all these decisions that Jonah makes and starts to think, okay, what should I do? Should I cause a storm? Should I cause a great fish? No, God was in control the whole time and God was sovereign. And that is the point of this story. That, the point is to show us that God is sovereign. And the point is to show us that through understanding and following in obedience God's sovereignty, that Israel or Jonah is to be, is to be a light to the nations. The point is not whether or not this miracle could happen, but to point us to the sovereignty of God and ultimately his redemptive plan. God is always in control. And guys, before we, we close this story out, what I want to do is I want us to see there's a couple of times in the book of Matthew where Jesus is specifically mentioning Jonah. There's two times in the New Testament that Jesus mentions Jonah, and one of them comes in Matthew chapter 12. It says, this is Jesus speaking, he says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew chapter 16 says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, 
but no sign is given to it except the sign of Jonah. So these are two uh, passages where Jesus speaks of Jonah specifically. And the question for us becomes, how is Jonah a sign? Because we see that here in Matthew chapter 16. How is Jonah a sign? And what does that sign signify? Well, what Jesus is trying to say here is this, his deliverance from the grave, his, his coming resurrection, would be similar to that of Jonah as Jonah comes out of the, the belly of the fish, only Jesus's would be so much greater. You see, the sign of Jonah was Jonah himself in the message that God had given him, but the sign of Jesus, God's sign, is Jesus himself and God's message of repentance, God's message of, of hope. In all of this, we see that Jesus points back to Jonah and the similarities that they have and says that he is the greater Jonah. And so Jonah and Jesus can be compared uh, favorably in many ways. And I have this, this chart on your notes, and you can look at them. But just looking at their comparison, Jonah and Jesus, they're both from Galilee. They both uh, taught God's uh, judgment and reconciliation. Both of them chose a death forsaken by others. They both caused storms to stop after sleeping through it. If you remember, Jesus was on a ship with his disciples, and this storm hits, and he's asleep at the bottom of the boat. They wake him up, and he, he comes up to the top of the boat, and he calms the storm. Now, Jesus calms the storm through his divinity, and when Jonah wakes up and is brought to the, the top of the ship, and his, uh, it's, it's ultimately his, in a way, his repentance that stops the storm as he's thrown into the sea. But both Jonah and Jesus uh, are compared favorably in the way that Jonah entered the jaws of the fish. Jesus entered the jaws of the grave. Both of them were kept there for three days. And then ultimately, Jonah, his obedience and preaching led to a conversion of a great city in Nineveh. And we'll see that later on in this book that the Ninevites repent. But then Jesus, in his obedience and preaching, led to the conversion of many cultures of the world. And so all of this, we see that the, the two compare to each other. And they compare favorably to each other, but ultimately, Jesus is trying to get us to understand that he is the greater Jonah. And so with that in mind, let's jump into our questions. The first one says, in what ways does the account of Jonah resemble that of the account of Jesus? And what does that mean for us? And what should this point us to? Next, how might a better understanding of God's sovereignty fuel your obedience to God's commands? How might understanding that God is in control at all times, God is sovereign over all things, how might knowing that and understanding that fuel our obedience to follow God and ultimately live out that calling to be a light to the world, a light to the nations? And lastly, in what ways have we let our light to the world grow dim? Guys, I've pointed out a few examples already through this teaching that where the Israelites had had allowed their light to the world to grow dim, that calling to be a light to the nations, that light had grown dim. And you know, we're very quick to get on the bandwagon of really dogging on the Israelites and their failures in the Old Testament. But guys, how often and in what areas of our life have we allowed our light to the world, that calling that we have to be a light to the nations, how have we let that grow dim in our lives? 
Father, thank you for today. God, I just thank you for for allowing us to dive deep into your word, into the book of Jonah. And God, I pray that you would just continue to, to teach us and to grow us closer to you through what we are learning in this book. Father, I pray that we would understand your sovereignty and we would seek to know and, and seek to trust that you are sovereign in control of all things. And God, that would ultimately fuel our obedience to follow you more and to follow your commands. And God, ultimately, that we would be a light to the world, a light to the nations. Father, I pray that you would give us opportunities in the coming week where we can shine that light, Lord, um, and through trusting in your sovereignty, God, that our, that light would shine so bright. So in your name I pray, amen. Thank you, guys.